Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And now that January is here, you may have noticed a certain document making its way to your mailbox. If it hasn't arrived yet, you should have it by the end of the month or early February at the latest. It's the W-2, that trusty wage and tax statement that lets us know first and foremost how much money we earned last year. And when it comes to earning money, overall, we here in Washington bear the distinction of doing pretty well. After all, we have the lowest poverty rate of any metropolitan city in the country, about 8.5%. But at the same time, we also have the highest rate of people who are considered to be the poorest of the poor. That is, who live at least 50% below the federal poverty level. So this week, we're dedicating our show to the tricky topic of wealth. And that word, we've found, tends to elicit all kinds of thoughts and opinions. Just this week, we hit up downtown D.C. to ask people their thoughts and opinions on wealth, more specifically, how much money they think you have to make to be considered wealthy in Washington. Here's what we got. To be comfortable, about eighty, eighty-five $85,000. Per year, probably about 250000 because I spend that a year. Uh, to be wealthy in Washington, $20,000 a month. Two fifty makes you pretty wealthy. But, you know, wealth's all relative. To be considered wealthy... I can't even begin to fathom, because I'm not in that bracket at all. $50,000. I think $50,000 will be good. I'd say a million in D.C. $195,000. It's more than I make. 40 plus a year? I mean, that's like better off. Nothing. You can be wealthy in your heart. Those were Washingtonians speaking with Metro Connections' Lauren Landau. So, how much does it actually take to be considered wealthy in Washington? Well, as you just heard, that's a tough one to answer, especially given Washington's ever-changing attitude toward wealth. Or so says this guy. I'm Steve Perlstein. I've been a columnist and writer for the Washington Post since 1988 when I moved to Washington. I actually lived here also in the mid-1970s when I worked for members of Congress. In the interim, Pearlstein was working in his native New England. He came back in 88 to be the Post's deputy business editor, at which point he and his wife pooled their respective funds from their respective house sales in Boston and jointly purchased a home in an upscale part of northwest D.C. It was on Fulton Street in Wesley Heights, half a block off Foxhall Road. A few months later, Pearlstein was sitting in his office when who should walk in but Bob Kaiser. Kaiser would soon become the Post's managing editor. And after discreetly closing the door, he strode up to Pearlstein's desk. And threw down a copy of the paper of the section that had these real estate listings. And one of the transactions was circled, and that was mine. So right there, in black and white, widely circulated newsprint, you could see... How much we paid for the house. Which was approximately... $830,000. And that, Pearlstein was told, simply was not cool. Bob, perhaps uh, a little disturbed, but also wanting to help me out since I was new to town and new to the Post, wanted me to know that this really wasn't the sort of thing that mid-level editors at the Washington Post did, which was to visibly spend so much money on a house. Because the way Kaiser put it... It didn't reflect my proper station at the paper and in the community, and it called too much attention to myself. It was too glitzy, and I shouldn't have done it. See, Bob Kaiser was a Washington native, and his Washington viewed wealth in a very, very particular way. I recently met up with Steve Pearlstein at his current house, not too far from the Cleveland Park Metro, to discuss what he calls the middle-class paradise of post-World War II D.C., and how much that paradise has changed. You know, it was much more, it was a small, sleepy southern town 
focused totally on the government. And there were people who had brought some money to Washington or inherited some money. There really wasn't a lot of money being made in Washington. But the ethic was that you were here to do public service. And this ethic about public service was not only shared by people who worked for the government. It was shared by people who worked in trade associations, law firms, journalism, and you weren't supposed to think about what you were doing as being part of a career to make money. It was a career to gain influence, to gain stature, to gain respect, perhaps. Those were sort of the right ambitions. The wrong ambition was to have a big fancy house in Wesley Heights. I want to talk about then the transition from this view of working toward public service, not flaunting your wealth. When did that attitude start to change in Washington, in your view? Well, it all started changing in the 80s and the 90s, and you have to go almost segment by segment. Uh, We've talked about the law firms, and what happened in, in the law business was that as the law business became more nationalized, and as other law firms from other cities started to open up Washington offices, there was a great deal of competition for the talent that was here, and bidding wars started up. And so all of a sudden, in order to lure a partner away from Covington or Shaw Pittman, you had to pay more. So we got into a little bit of an arms race with the law business. Then the law business also changed for reasons having to do with corporate clients all over the country. And so it became much more of a star system. Um, And let's talk about the government contracting business. In the early days, there were government contractors, but they were nowhere near as many or as big as they are today. What developed in the 1980s under the Reagan administration was this anti-government attitude that the private sector could do it better and this outsourcing of what were more mundane and routine government functions started to begin. These companies, people realized, could be real honeypots. All of a sudden, the companies, rather than the primary purpose of the companies as to to be a long-term contractor for certain agencies, the point of the game was to make money buying and selling them. And so Wall Street came in um, as part of this system, and people could and did make big money and still do. So those are two uh, big areas, but a third area is real estate. As Washington and the government got bigger and more complex, they needed more people in Washington. And so what had been a sleepy southern town with plenty of land. Well, all of a sudden, land became worth more because there were more people that needed to live and work here. And so real estate development, which had always been the source of some local wealth, now it became a much bigger business. And a lot of money, institutional money, came from the outside to be invested in Washington real estate. In addition, just think about it, everyone who lived here and owned a house got to ride the real estate wave. So Bob Kaiser, the managing editor who came to complain to me, bought a house around DuPont Circle in the mid-1970s for less than $60,000, which he would have considered an appropriate amount, has just retired after 50 years at the Washington Post, a distinguished career, moving with his wife to New York. And he sold his house for, you know, something in excess of $2 million. 
Well, you write that as Washingtonians began to make more and spend more, philanthropy sort of became a larger thing. What role have philanthropists played through the years, and how would you compare back then to now? You know, by the 1970s, there was the K. Fritz Foundation and there was the Meyer, Eugene Meyer Foundation. Those were really the only big foundations. Washington was not a philanthropic town, and the reason was, A, there wasn't a lot of money here, a lot of big money, and B, people were giving every day at the office, in a sense, they all thought they were in public service. To the degree that Washington became much more commercial, much more like every place else, to the degree that the public service ethic receded, and to the degree that there was then serious money in Washington, Washington began to develop a very strong philanthropic tradition uh, here. And now there are many, many people making a lot of money and giving it away. As sort of the, the attitude toward wealth in Washington has changed, more and more philanthropists have sprouted up. Is that then a positive offshoot of this idea of making more and spending more in Washington? Making more, spending more, and giving more away. All three. They all go as a package. And that's a positive sign. Again, I I think it is the replacement for the same instinct people had 50 years ago, the public service ethic. But this was not a conscious decision on the part of Washington to get rich. There was no, you know, there was no meeting of a cabal at the Metropolitan Club in which they decided, hey, you know, we can really cash in here, guys. The mores and the ethics and the incentives of the rest of the country got to Washington eventually. The law business changed. The financialization of American business, that has happened everywhere, but it happened here as well. The different ethic toward wealth and whether you should show it or not. So all of this stuff sort of played itself out in Washington, but it's not so much that Washington changed as the country changed and Washington then changed with it. That was Stephen Perlstein, a Pulitzer-winning business columnist with The Washington Post. And we want to know, do you think Washington, D.C. has transformed from a sleepy southern town to more of a money machine? You can send an email to metro at wamu.org. All right, so let's say you're one of the big cogs in that money machine Stephen Perlstein was talking about. If you're doing that well in Washington, then you probably want to keep as much of that cash in your coffers as possible, right? Well, not necessarily, it turns out. See, over the past couple of years, a number of well-to-do progressives in D.C. have been talking about how to make the city's income tax system more fair. And one way to do that, they say, is to ask the city's wealthy residents to pay a little bit more. And as Lauren Ober tells us, many of those folks are more than happy to pony up. We all know there are only two certainties in this life, death and taxes. This is a story about the latter. Now, none of us love taxes, that's for sure. But some people don't mind them. And some people, like Lewis Perwin, are even willing to pay a little bit more of them. Everyone pays taxes. Why should I pay more? Because I feel like I'm the most able to pay for it. But also beyond that... I gain from living in a society I feel that's more equal. Yep, you heard him right. He's saying he should pay more in taxes because he can afford it. Perwin is a market analyst at Freddie Mac, so he makes a decent wage. He also inherited money from his wealthy grandparents. He has a trust fund, a sleek condo in downtown D.C., and a wife who makes a good living as well. 
as such... There's sort of an obligation to, you know, do my part. Kerwin is one of a number of high-income D.C. residents who have advocated for higher taxes for themselves. Not drastically higher, just enough so that the responsibility for paying for things like roads, emergency services, and homeless shelters is more fairly distributed. A, social services need to be provided, and B, someone needs to pay for them. Those who should pay for it, I feel, are the people who are the most able to pay for it. In 2011, after serious budget shortfalls, the D.C. Council established the D.C. Tax Revision Commission. Its mandate was simple. Find a way to make the city's tax structure more equitable and less complicated, while also broadening the tax base, encouraging business growth, and making the city more competitive. Former D.C. Mayor Anthony Williams chaired the commission, which met for more than a year to draft recommendations. Those came out just before Christmas. During the commission's deliberations, it heard from many high-income earners like Perwin asking for a more progressive tax code. So that we know exactly what that means, here's Janelle Tribitz of the D.C. Fair Budget Coalition. The idea is that as you make more money, you pay incrementally more in taxes. It's a way for everybody to pay their fair share. But currently in the district, the tax code doesn't seem all that progressive. Here's what it looks like currently. If you make less than $10,000, 4% of your income goes to taxes. 10000 to 40000 and you're paying 6% to the tax man. And this is where it gets a little strange. If you make between 40000 and 350000 you're looking at an 8.5% tax rate. That's a huge spread. And it means that if you make $45,000 at your job as a bank teller, you're paying the same percentage in taxes as your doctor who's making $300,000 a year. Tribit sees a problem with this, especially in light of the fact that when budget shortfalls happen, the first things to get ditched are often services for the city's most vulnerable residents. We found that if our tax code was more progressive, we could weather these kinds of storms more elegantly. And in general, we don't have enough money for our programs. So if we are going to have a city where both the haves and the have-nots can live, then we have to have a little bit more of equitable input. To make income taxes more fair, Tribits and fellow activists are advocating for a slightly higher tax for the highest income earners. Think DC's millionaires, who account for about one in every 16 households here. And they want the city to institute more tax brackets so that people making solidly middle-class wages are paying a smaller percentage of their income to taxes than their neighbors earning six figures. In other words, they're asking wealthy people to pay a little more. And perhaps surprisingly, at least some of those wealthy people want the same thing. So we believe those of us that have been lucky during this recession, and more broadly who are earning good wages and have good jobs, are in a position where we should be paying more in taxes for the services that we benefit from and that benefit everyone in the city. Jacob Feinspan is executive director of Jews United for Justice, a local social justice nonprofit. Back in 2011, Jews United for Justice organized Raise My Taxes house parties to help members learn about progressive tax reform. Most recently, they rallied members to testify before the D.C. Tax Revision Commission in support of higher taxes. There's a story in Judaism where an old man is planting trees and someone sees him doing it and asks, why are you planting these trees? You'll never see them grow. And he says, it's not for me to complete the work, but neither can I walk away from it. None of us are products of only our own success. Everything in our lives has been built on the work of our parents and their parents and our neighbors and our teachers. And wanting to invest in a stronger community is about wanting what's best for us and also what's best for our children. The Tax Revision Commission recommended a number of changes to the city's tax code. 
Namely, they suggested that an 8.75 percent tax rate for the wealthiest Washingtonians be made permanent in 2016. And they recommended additional tax brackets to spread the responsibility more equitably. Activists like Janelle Tribitz are generally pleased with the progressive direction of the suggestions. Now it's up to the D.C. Council to take up the proposal and decide whether it wants rich residents to chip in a bit more for the city's coffers. I'm Lauren Ober. a break, but when we get back, why Maryland is leading the region in foreclosures. The good news is that the market is improving. The bad news is the banks and the services are trying to move foreclosed properties much faster than they had been in the past. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're talking dollars and cents as we look at wealth in the Washington region. In just a bit, we'll head to Maryland, where many people are losing the wealth they have tied up in their homes. We'll find out why foreclosures in the old line state are dramatically on the rise. First, though, when the government cracks down on financial crimes at big banks, it's targeting entities like drug cartels, terrorists, and money launderers. But the thing is, these regulations are also affecting people on the right side of the law, including local businesses that serve the many thousands of immigrants who call our region home. Jennifer Strong brings us the story. At the Sky Market in Gaithersburg, Paolo Martinez is sending money to a friend in Mexico with the help of store clerk Estela Vidas. Moments ago, she helped a teenager send money to his mom, who also lives in Mexico. When immigrants send money to someone outside the U.S., it's called a remittance. Last year, people sent at least $530 billion across the globe through remittances, and the World Bank says that number is conservative. It could be off by as much as 50 percent. That's because only the money sent through a professional service with bank accounts, like this one, can be tracked. This is the first money transfer shop willing to talk about the process. From big chains to corner delis, it's as if I'm asking people to go on record about something illicit. Manuela Rosco is an expert in remittances and a senior fellow at the Inter-American Dialogue in downtown D.C. There has been an assumption of risk that by the fact that they do cross-border transfers, they may be involving illegal activities. Money transfer services are just as legal as using an ATM. In some parts of town, storefronts offering these transactions are as ubiquitous as pizzerias or a dry cleaners. That makes sense, given that hundreds of thousands of local residents rely on these businesses every month. But Manuela Rosco says money transfer companies are nervous because banks are closing their accounts. If you don't have those bank accounts, you can't do money transfers. You also face the stigma that your business is actually shoddy. So it creates a number of uncertainties in the business to the extent that some can get out of it. 
He says the federal government's crackdown on financial crimes at big banks hasn't helped. Regulators are taking aim at banks that look the other way when criminals use them to transfer money. It's called money laundering when criminal money is transferred around to hide where it came from. Bankers fear having money transfer operators as clients could get them in trouble. Manuel Orozco says that's because banks don't really understand how these companies work. He says 99 percent of global remittances are less than $500 and the legal limit is $3,000. Most money laundering actually occurs not in the amounts of $500, but they are in the 20000 or plus. It doesn't pay you to use a money transfer company. Last year, banks paid record fines for not following anti-money laundering regulation. HSBC paid nearly $2 billion, in part for allowing Mexican and Colombian drug cartels to launder money. In a statement, HSBC said that, quote, ensuring the highest standards wherever we do business is an ongoing process. But Heather Lowe at Global Financial Integrity, a watchdog group, says bankers at HSBC should have faced criminal prosecution. They accepted over $800 million in drug proceeds. I mean, they know that this is drug proceeds, $800 million, and nobody went to jail. The headlines were huge, and politicians on both sides of the political spectrum got angry. Democratic Congresswoman Maxine Waters of California introduced a bill that would make it easier to bring criminal charges against bank employees. A number of the multinational banks actively turned off the anti-money laundering controls, not only financing drug cartels, but terrorists also. This is criminal activity, and it needs to be looked at that way. Lawmakers also want to make it harder to launder money in the first place. But even if none of these proposed reforms become law, all the attention has banks looking to minimize risk. And to some, that includes not doing business with companies that process remittances. At a fundraiser in Falls Church, members of the Somali diaspora are gathered to raise money for victims of a hurricane. Ayan Hassan is one of the organizers. We have good news. We have collected 15000 There's no banking system in Somalia. To get this money to the people who need it, Hassan has two options. Pilot in a suitcase and fly to Somalia, or drive to a storefront that does money transfers. Somalis call these stores Hawala. Ishmael Ali Ishmael is among the fundraiser's attendees. He's a retired UN Economic Development Officer for Africa. This is essential to their lives, you know. When uh, without Hawala... So many people are going to perish. All the Somalis who are abroad have immediate relatives to look after, you know, and they can be sustained through these transfers of money. Remittances make up half of Somalia's economy. Ending them would be catastrophic. That nearly happened in the U.K. One by one, banks closed the accounts of Somali money transfer services until only one operator remained and a British court intervened. While nothing that extreme has happened here, there's plenty of anxiety among those who rely on these services. Guled Qasim lives in Silver Spring. So I'm an immigrant. I came here when I was 10. Uh, We still have family overseas, and we still send money over. Uncles, cousins, aunts. Um, So stopping that would be devastating because you really stop, you know, how families can be part of the financial, global financial system. He says families responsible for relatives abroad will do all they can to keep them safe and fed, even if that means going underground. I'm Jennifer Strong.
Our next story is about one of the most important measures of wealth for many Washingtonians, home ownership. And believe it or not, some six years after the housing crisis began, many homeowners in our region are still struggling, especially in Maryland. Over the past year, the number of foreclosures in the state has shot up, with new filings increasing by more than 250 percent. Jacob Fenston tells us what's behind this new wave of foreclosures. No one gets behind on their mortgage on purpose. There's always something, losing a job, an illness in the family, or monthly payments that suddenly become unaffordable. For Nana Malaya, it was an act of nature, a storm with a funny name. It was called a derecho. Derecho is Spanish for straight ahead, and that is exactly what this storm did. It was that crazy storm that hit the D.C. area on June 29, 2012. The wind came in hurricane force. Malaya owns a top-floor condo in the Cheverly area of Prince George's County. She happened to be out of town the night the storm hit. When she got home, a terrified neighbor described what had happened. I said, well, it must have been like a dollhouse because the roof was completely gone. And she said, not like a dollhouse and the roof coming off, more like a sardine can and the whole thing just being slowly ripped away while she sat in her living room watching TV. The wind and rain destroyed nearly everything in Malaya's condo. Insurance would pay to replace many of her things and to repair the building, but those repairs would take more than a year. So it was like, okay, where am I going to go for a year? And then the reality of the fact that I would also have to pay my mortgage and wherever and however else I was going to sustain myself got to be a real uh, eye-opener. Her insurance didn't pay for the whole time she was displaced, and she ended up couch hopping with friends and relatives. But the storm wasn't the only reason she got behind on her mortgage. It was more like the last straw. Malaya works in the arts and arts education, and when the recession hit, money got tight very quickly. Just so many places, just the funding got discontinued. So with that, also went my income. She certainly wasn't the only one struggling. In 2013, a second wave of foreclosures hit Maryland. In the third quarter of last year, the most recent for which numbers are available, there were more than 11,000 foreclosures across the state. Among all 50 states, Maryland zoomed from 16th most foreclosures to number three in the nation. That's a bit of a distorted view if you look at the, the larger view. Clarence Snuggs is Maryland's Deputy Secretary of Housing and Community Development. The numbers were down significantly in 2011 and 2012. During those years, lenders basically hit pause on processing foreclosures in Maryland. At the end of 2010, the state went from seeing more than 5,000 a month to fewer than 2,000. There were a number of factors. After the 2010 robo-signing scandal, banks slowed way down and spent the next two years working out a settlement with state attorneys general. Also in 2010, Maryland passed laws making foreclosure a more difficult and time-consuming process. Back in 2007, it was possible to uh, foreclose on a homeowner in Maryland in as short as 15 days. Another factor is the housing market. The housing market is getting better. Eric Brown is director of the Prince George's County Housing Department. We're beginning to see values rise. We're beginning to see houses staying on the market for a shorter period of time. People beginning to get closer to the asking price for their home. So there's that glimmer of hope that things are turning around. Prince George's was one of the areas hardest hit by the foreclosure crisis in the state. But last year, housing prices in Prince George's had the second fastest growth of any jurisdiction in the region, increasing by 16 percent. 
That rebounding market is encouraging banks to foreclose on homeowners who are late on their payments. The bank said, if the market is getting better, then I can push these things out quicker. I don't need to let the delinquencies lay around as long as they have been. Lenders who foreclose now will likely get more for a property than they would have a few years ago. So you got good news and bad news. And the good news is that the market is improving. The bad news is that the banks and the servicers are trying to move foreclosed properties much faster than they had been in the past. Prince George's County got $10 million from the national mortgage settlement following the robo-signing scandal. Most of that money is going to prop up struggling neighborhoods, rehabbing vacant homes, and helping new homeowners buy houses. Donna Hurley is a housing counselor in Prince George's, and she was recently part of a foreclosure task force convened by the county council. She says the county is focusing too much on new home buyers. Of the $10 million settlement, only a fraction is going to current homeowners who are in trouble. She says it's only enough to help about 200 with mortgage assistance. When you start looking at the amount of people in, that's in trouble, 200 homeowners is, you know, like a tip of the iceberg. Hurley runs a nonprofit called Housing Options and Planning Enterprises, or HOPE. We do home buyers education. We do financial literacy. So we want to create new homeowners. I just don't think that we should be creating new homeowners on the back of homeowners that are losing their homes. The amount of money delinquent homeowners owe isn't all that much, less than $10,000 on average in Prince George's County. The problem is that so many people have lost income in the recession that even getting current on their mortgages may not make a home affordable. For Nana Malaya, who was facing foreclosure on her storm-ravaged condo, things started looking up when she got more hours at a part-time job. She also worked with housing counselors at Hope, and last September, she got good news from her mortgage company. I'm doing cartwheels, there's bells, there's confetti going all around. Um, I was able to uh, get a modification. It's very reasonable. My company is also working with me in ways in which I was surprised. Uh, It's almost like a 360 kind of degree turn. Of course, not everyone can get a loan modification or other assistance. Thousands will lose their homes before this is all over. Clarence Snuggs at the Maryland Housing Department says many of the foreclosures happening now are part of a backlog left over from the recession. He expects lenders to work through that backlog within the next year. So by 2015, he says the state's foreclosure rate should return to pre-recession levels. I'm Jacob Fenston. As we continue today's Wealth Show, we're going to turn now to some pretty big-ticket items. New rail cars for Metro. The new cars will replace all 300 of the 1,000 series cars, which date back to 1976. We'll hear more on our regular transportation segment from A to B. Metro is spending a billion dollars to buy hundreds of new rail cars, and transportation reporter Martin DeCaro had the chance to check them out this week. And he joins us now. Hi, Martin. 
Hi, Rebecca. All right, so tell us about these fancy new cars. Well, first, they look new. Stainless steel exterior. They have a non-slip flooring, no more of those carpets. Padded seating with lumbar support, digital public address, digital signage, so you can follow the train as it nears each stop along the line. They are modern rail cars. Here is Metro General Manager Richard Sarles at a news conference on the Greenbelt platform. These cars are replacing 40-year-old rail cars that, that are unreliable and cause delays today. So instead of matching the old design, we decided to make a clean break and create a car with the future of Metro in mind. The new cars are safer and more customer-friendly than the cars in service today. So it sounds to me like Metro is purchasing these cars for reasons that go well beyond, you know, the cosmetic. That's right. These cars are safer than the 1970s-era rail cars. National Transportation Safety Board Chairman Deborah Hurstman was also at the event, and I asked her about the safety issue. These new cars actually have crash attenuation features built into them, and when you think about that, that's really like the crash cage in your car and how how to make it more survivable. We want to preserve the space for the metro operators and for the passengers. So the 7000 series don't actually prevent crashes. They're safer in the event of a crash. The plan is to start passenger service by the end of the year. Metro has 528 of these cars on order at the Kawasaki plant in Lincoln, Nebraska. In five years, Metro hopes to have half its fleet, 7000 series, The 4000 series will also be phased out. So, Martin, all of this talk of of safety makes me think about the red line crash back in 2009. Did that incident play a role in Metro's decision to spring for these new cars? Good question. That's really key here. In June 2009, nine people were killed on the red line near Fort Taunton when Metro's signaling system failed. So while these new cars, new rail cars, will fulfill a key safety recommendation of the NTSB that came out of its crash investigation, Metro is still four and a half years later, working to fulfill another recommendation that deals with the signaling. Again, here's Hersman. So it's incredibly important for them to continue that work. This is the system that really protects train operations in the track um, and gives commands to operators to follow. And so they're continuing to work on that. And this is all about the front end of accident prevention. So once Metro completes this work, it'll be able to return its system to automatic operation, which allows computers to handle the movement of cars. But Metro says the system is operating safely under manual operation. In the meantime, the automatic system is currently under a safety review. All right. So, Martin, turning now from trains to automobiles, um, I want to talk about the D.C. taxicab fleet. I hear the taxicab commission has a new tactic to catch drivers who aren't following the rules. Let's call them undercover test passengers. I don't know, Rebecca, are you looking for any? part-time work. (laughs) The DCTC hired 10 people, men and women of different races, to randomly hail taxis over a two-week period last month. 91 taxis were hailed, and 43 had at least one reportable issue. Okay, let me guess. uh, Credit card machines that weren't working. Well, actually, in most cases, 94%, the DCTC says the credit card machines were working. We've detailed many problems with those machines over the past two months, but DCTC Chairman Ron Linton says things are getting better. We have not had... uh, anywhere near the complaints, both from riders or cabbies, that we were getting in the first month or two after installations began. Six drivers said their credit card machines were broken, but test riders found another problem that continues to annoy regulators. Eight drivers who had working machines tried to get their passengers to pay in another way with an unimproved system or with cash only. Wow, what else did they find? 
The most common infraction was actually failure to post a photo ID. Also, eight drivers refused to pick up a passenger. And that's a very touchy issue in D.C. because it predominantly affects African-American men. The Taxi Cab Commission calls it a violation that will not be tolerated. Now, in the field test, the undercover riders who were turned down rides were of mixed ethnicities. Again, a cabbie on duty is not allowed to discriminate against passengers or ask them where they're going. All right, so all of these uh, rules you're talking about, let's say a cabbie does break one of them, what's the penalty then? The drivers who are caught here will have hearings before the D.C. Taxi Cab Commission. The fines are between $100 and $1,000 per infraction. And given that drivers tend to bring home, what, like 100 bucks a day or so in profits, that sounds like a penalty they would definitely want to avoid. Definitely. All right, so let's shift gears, so to speak. Uh-huh. Aha. <laughs> One more time and uh, talk about issues that affect people in the D.C. suburbs. Um, Martin, I understand you recently looked at a study about commuting on I-95 in Virginia. Tell us about that study. This study is uh, very interesting. Uh, it's by the George Mason University Center for Regional Analysis. It looked at the 21-mile stretch of 95 in Prince William and Fairfax counties. It focused on where people live now and where population and job growth are expected to take place and found that most people have only 95 as an option to get to work who live in that corridor. It also found that recent projects to improve the highway have provided only short-term relief. So the study's author, Peter Versell, says it'll take more than just building new lanes. I wouldn't say that it's not an answer, but it's not the only answer, that the answer really has to be done through a comprehensive look at land use, transportation, and economic development all at the same time. So a study basically echoes the research of regional transportation planners. They say the region's future will rely heavily on public transit investments and land use strategies to give people the option to live closer to their jobs and leave their cars at home. Well, Martin DeCaro, thank you so much for bringing us this uh, roundup of what's going on in the world of transportation. Thanks, Rebecca. After the break, giant bubbles in our region. We go inside the super zips. I don't think income inequality is the problem. I think cultural inequality is the problem. It's coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Uh, this week we're talking about wealth in the Washington region. And as we've been discovering throughout today's show... The nation's capital is a fascinating place when it comes to wealth. Because money-wise, there isn't just one Washington. Statistics show the region has an extremely high rate of the poorest of the poor. But they also show... All right, we're standing at the corner of 9th and F Northwest. Washington has an extremely high rate. There's a little bit of street work being done. You might hear that sound in the background. Of the richest of the rich. So apparently... Here on F Street Northwest, between 9th and 10th, we are in what's known as a super zip. Super zip. You've no doubt heard that term bandied about. Uh, not too long ago, the Washington Post featured this colorful map of all the nation's super zips. And you don't have to look too closely to see that a massive cluster of these zips are right here in the D.C. region, including the Penn Quarter neighborhood, or zip code 20004. There's this newish condo building on F Street where units can go for nearly a million and a half dollars. And that's where I recently met up with the man who coined the term Super Zips, Charles Murray. I'm Charles Murray. I'm a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. That's a nonpartisan think tank here in D.C. And I recently wrote, wrote a book about Super Zips. That's coming apart. 
Murray's other books include Human Accomplishment, Real Education, and the 1994 New York Times bestseller, The Bell Curve. But back to this whole super zip thing, what exactly is a super zip? Well, let's say you take all the zip codes in America, as Charles Murray did. And had an index of the percentage of people who had college degrees and the average income. And then you rank all these zip codes, as Charles Murray did. The top 5% I call super zips. So we're talking zip codes where people are... Very affluent, very well educated. Do the math, and that means they have a median household income of $120,000, and 7 out of every 10 adults have a college degree. Here in the D.C. metropolitan area, more than a third of zips would be considered super. And as Charles Murray points out, many of them are contiguous. You've got Northwest Washington, McLean, Virginia, Bethesda Chevy Chase. You take those areas alone and look up the home addresses of the people who run this city. They are within about 13 zip codes. And Rebecca, of those 13 zip codes... 11 of them are not only in the 99th percentile of this index, 11 of them are in the top half of the top percentile. So why is it that the Washington region has such a high concentration of these super zips? Washington has accumulated this huge, and by huge I mean more than a million people living in contiguous super zips, this huge cluster of super zips because Washington is where the action is, not just for politics, but for corporate America. Forty, fifty years ago, there were hardly any corporations that even had an office in Washington, D.C. Since then, there are lots of ways that the bottom line of corporations are affected by what happens in Washington. And as a result, you have a whole lot of people brought in here, very well-educated, very smart, uh, very capable, to deal with the federal government on behalf of a whole lot of different kinds of organizations in the rest of America. You mentioned earlier people in super zips perhaps being isolated on the western side of Washington, both within the city proper and in the suburbs. What are the practical implications of that extreme concentration of wealth? The practical implications, for one, are that children who grow up in that concentrated area of wealth go to school with kids who are pretty much exactly like them. I don't mean ethnically. On the west side of Washington, you have all kinds of ethnicities from all around the world. Lots of diversity there. Not much diversity in their socioeconomic status. They go from K-12 in that kind of environment, and those same kids from western Washington then go to good schools, also filled with people like them. They get internships at places like the American Enterprise Institute or the Brookings Institution. They can go all the way from childhood to career without ever moving outside the bubble. What you're talking about now actually reminds me of something you wrote in the Wall Street Journal last year about how America is coming apart. And I think about our region and sort of the inequality that's talked about. Are you talking about income inequality? Actually, I don't think income inequality is the problem. I think cultural inequality is the problem. And I don't think reducing income inequality is going to do a thing to bring us back together again culturally. Of all the bubbles in the country, I think the one in Washington is in many ways the most removed. Because at least if you're in the bubble in New York City, you're in the midst of a city which is engaged with the ordinary American economy. In Washington, D.C., it's this public policy, government-centered thing, which, you know what, is really weirdly different from cities anywhere else in the country. So where do you think we'll be in 20 years in Washington in terms of our concentration of super zips and this inequality you talk about? Well, when I'm being pessimistic about it, I say it's going to be much, much worse. Look, where we are standing right now, 
was virtually a slum 30, 40 years ago. Uh, now it is the belly of the beast in terms of this, this, uh, this new elite I'm talking about. Well, suppose that continues. It's worse than a European kind of class uh, structure. I think it's more like uh, an aristocratic one where there will be a set of people who are second and third and fourth generation elite who will take on some of the characteristics of a caste. When I'm being optimistic, I think about when I give speeches on this, I get reactions from especially parents in the room when I say, to what extent are your children being systematically deprived of the kinds of experiences that made you who you are? Because a lot of times I'm talking to very successful people who did grow up in small towns, working class. And I get nods. I get people saying, this is correct. We are raising our children as hothouse flowers. We ought to do something about it. And so in my optimistic moods, I think the idea of getting out of the bubble is one whose time may have come. Charles Murray is a scholar with the American Enterprise Institute. His most recent book is Coming Apart. To see the Washington area's super zip cluster for yourself, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Zip. Walter Lippmann wasn't brilliant today. Zip. Will the giants ever take it away? Zip. I was reading Schopenhauer last night. Zip. And I think that Schopenhauer was right. We'll wrap things up on today's wealth show in the forests of Maryland, where we'll hear about a different kind of wealth, the biological kind. Now, you might think the most frigid week of winter would be a less than ideal time to send a reporter out to the woods to search for wildlife. And you might have a point, but environment reporter Jonathan Wilson rose to the occasion and hiked around a local nature preserve to find out what you can see in the woods when the temperature takes a nosedive. He returned, frostbite-free, thank goodness, to bring us the story of some local flora that's thriving, even in the bitter cold. A few miles north of Frederick, Maryland, Deborah Solomon is leading me down a forested slope in the Catoctin Mountains. It's cold, a little more than 10 degrees Fahrenheit. But as we scamper down through the trees, it's clear not everything is frozen. There's water bubbling up out of the ground from under rocks and between trees. That's clean water. It looks like it's emerging from the base of the tree, but it's really, there's like a spring underneath there. Exactly. It's coming from out of the mountain, and it's, this is where this stream is starting. Yeah, it's beautiful. The stream is beautiful, but we're in search of something a little more colorful, some green amidst all the brown and white of winter. Solomon is a biologist with the Nature Conservancy, a nonprofit that owns the preserve in which we're hiking. She's promised me green, and as we scale the hill on the other side of the stream, the full spectrum appears to carpet the rocks underfoot. We have a really wide range. What you see here, this nice soft carpet, is a sphagnum moss. We also have some interesting lichens. Some of them are called rock lettuce um, that presumably you can eat, but I've never tasted one. There's also a bushier pale green variety known as reindeer lichen for its antler-like appearance. Other types of lichen here look almost pinkish. You have the entire palette of greens. Just, it's amazing. You get the vibrant greens, the pale greens. You've got the nice, soft, fuzzy ones and the ones hugging on the rocks. 
These organisms have a few tricks for thriving in winter when other flora and fauna hibernate or die off. This plant, it, it grows very low and it's got its little microclimate here nestled between the rocks. We're facing south, so it's, getting, it's taking full advantage of all the sunlight, all the warmth that it's going to get during the day. Many also have the ability to go dormant when it gets too cold and regain their lushness with a single day of more moderate temperatures. Solomon says the Nature Conservancy targeted this land because of the diversity of plants on rocky outcroppings like this one. And that diversity has practical applications for everyone in our region. Having a healthy, rich, diverse system that's working as it should with all the different component parts translates into clean air that we breathe, the clean water that we drink, that we can see right here, that serves us, that that we so desperately need. Clean air, clean water, and rock lettuce to eat. A little warmer, and I could survive for weeks out here. Actually, she said this stuff was edible, not palatable. The other name for rock lettuce? Rock tripe. I'm Jonathan Wilson. coolest thing you've ever seen while hiking in the winter? And have you ever eaten rock lettuce? You can let us know how it tastes on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro or email us at metro at WAMU.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Jonathan Wilson, Martin DeCaro, and Lauren Ober, along with reporter Jennifer Strong. And today we're saying hello to the newest and youngest member of the Metro Connection team. On New Year's Eve, our own Emily Berman and her husband Adam welcomed their beautiful baby boy, Zev Joseph Berman, to the world. Emily and Adam, if you're listening, kudos and congratulations to you both. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll take a trip back in time with a show we're calling Throwbacks. We'll meet produce peddlers in Baltimore who sell their wares from horse-drawn carriages. We'll bid farewell to an old-school beer garden at Polka Hall. And we'll turn the dials with a group of folks who love radios of a bygone era. How many radios do you own at this point? Uh, I'm probably in the neighborhood of 200. Where do you keep all of them? I have a big basement. It's your man cave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of a big one, yeah. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.